catalog with it. So it's a book. Well, can it tweet? No. Can it text? Can it Wi-Fi? Does it need a password? No. Can it do this? No. It's a book. Welcome, everybody. That was a fun little thing Mark found to share with all of us. Thanks for joining us, taking time out of your Sunday. I don't know if you're here in Wisconsin. It's oddly hot for the beginning of May. So thank you for taking time out of a nice day to join us. We've got Marnie Ginsburg here today with us to talk about a variety of things, but Reading Simplified, her program, and some issues that we want to really dive into. So thanks for joining us today, Marnie. Mm -hmm, my pleasure. Thank you. Why don't we uh, start with you just telling us a little bit about how you got to where you are, how you started a company and all mm -hmm. these things you're doing. Sure. Um, a lot of people here can probably relate to how I started about 20 years ago. I was an English teacher um, with kids who were really struggling in reading words and I realized I didn't know how to teach reading. And <clears throat> so I searched everywhere to try to find answers and there were a lot of competing theories finally found something that worked used it with two kids that were um <clears throat> not able able to read at even at the first grade level and after a few months they were ending the year at the mid third grade level which was exciting but i was like why was this happening that i was solving this problem to only partially in sixth grade so that kind of began a lifelong obsession about how to teach anyone how to learn to read rapidly easily efficiently what would be the most effective ways. Um, so from that public school teaching, I opened a private reading clinic that led to getting my doctorate at the University of North Carolina. And while I was there, I had the rare opportunity to um, <clears throat> lead the development of an intervention that was getting federal fun funds. And we um, asked kindergarten and first grade teachers who are in low income rural communities to pull aside a struggling reader for about 15 minutes a day and work one on one with them for those 15 minutes and using an intervention we suggested. And then we also coached them bi-monthly via webcam. And this was way back before people had heard of Zoom. And um, those teachers got effects and they're struggling readers across multiple journal articles that got published out of that, that program. It's called the Targeted Reading Intervention. They got effects of typically at around 0.3 to 0.7. And the IES director is even recommending it as one of the few um, studies so far that should be replicated. So that was good, all that was exciting, and yet I noticed very little was happening as a result of what we were doing in the field, and I naive, which is what I naively expected would happen when we got started. So when my husband got um, transferred up here to Wisconsin, um, I soon thereafter started a more grassroots approach, which is uh, Reading Simplified. And with Reading Simplified, we aim to provide a diagnostic system for thinking about how to teach anyone to read, whether they're a beginner or a student who's 10 or 15 who needs remediation. We try to serve all, all the different people that might work with kids, 
um, classroom teacher, interventionist, reading tutor, special educator, parent, and even, you know, we've had a lot of grandparents in the last year, what with COVID. And so we um, do this through the Reading Simplified Academy, which is an online site and community where we teach, we've got these two main goals. We want to rapidly bring teachers up to speed in a really easy way of teaching anyone, um, particularly how to read words and become fluent. And at the same time, um, provide a, a method that can uh, rapidly get anyone to read. So it's um, simplified in the, in, by design for the teacher taking up a new idea and then also a streamlined system for the child to more to learn more rapidly and so this uh, Reading Simplified Academy is online and some of the three main ways we reach teachers or parents or whomever is through a eight to ten hour main video course uh, over hun hundreds of uh, differentiated student materials and then ongoing um, support that's individualized through an online discussion board and we have many, I see many familiar faces here today of people that are implementing all over the world. It's really been exciting and um, very grassroots since that, that was kind of how we started uh, once I moved up here to Wisconsin. So how does it, how does the um, curriculum, the, the materials for kids, um, how is that integrated into what they're doing in the kids' schools? So, um, is it a complimentary other stuff? Is it, um, maybe right. you can talk about that. Yeah, well, it varies widely based on how the teacher, the, the freedom that the teacher has. So we have some teachers where they're mandated to do a particular curriculum and they use our system and our diagnostic framework to tweak things along the way and maybe drop something out and and save time with a, an activity that, that integrates multiple things instead of doing you know five things for their curriculum, they kind of choose one of ours to replace it. So a lot of folks do that. A lot of folks just replace it entirely with, uh, you know, don't use their reading basil or another series for their word learning component. So it's not a curriculum for uh, language arts completely in terms of comprehension of vocabulary. It's really just zeroing in on, let's get those kids to read words really rapidly. So it varies widely. And yeah, some of the time we have teachers that will say, well, I really learned a lot. I really want to do this. And my administration, administration says I have to do that. And so yes. we kind of help them figure out ways in which they can tweak and adapt. And um, that's ongoing. So, um, so tell us about this concept of being, of reading simplified. Um, what's it, what's the con contrast to? Okay. <clears throat> um, there's so many contrasts. I think, um, I think the thing that's probably most relevant to most people, well, some of you might be really interested in the teacher, the teacher simplification. Some of you may be more interested in the instructional simplification. Personally, I was, I started out with how are we going to simplify instruction for the student? Yeah. And so um, with all those experiences and reading widely, I, I've kind of distilled it in my mind that reading it, learning to read words is just a series of three big goals, assuming some level of oral comprehension skills, then to read words, you need to be able to break the concept of the alphabetic principle. And you need to then put into play a sound-based decoding approach to reading words and not a approach that looks at the picture. And then you need to read widely. Um, 
and get support, especially early on along the way, so that those sound-based decoding experiences are accurate and you um, learn to recognize words automatically. So if those are our three big goals, how can we orchestrate um, the lesson to, to target those aggressively? And so for instance, one of our big features is that we only have a handful of activities, but the, each of the activities integrates multiple subprocesses simultaneously because we want to get to that alphabetic principle and that sound-based decoding as soon as possible. Some programs um, might think that you need to learn, for instance, all of the letter sounds of the alphabet, all the letter names and all the letter sounds of the alphabet, and then you start putting letters, sounds together to make words. Yeah. But we, um, we want kindergarten teachers in the first week of school to learn three or four sounds, start making words, reading them and building them and spelling them. And so that they can get that concept of the alphabetic principle and they start that, that um, process of figuring out how to do sound-based decoding. So that's so, one example. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt if you want to give two and three. I mean, I, I just want to endorse what you were talking about and express some my, my own enthusiasm for it. So what does it mean to, for, so, I mean, one thing that you mentioned was the idea that um, you could be learning more than one thing at a time, I think, which is some, something you and I both really believe in, but could you talk about how it manifests itself in, for example, the kind of activities that you recommend or, or, or other things you tell teachers? Oh, you um, muted yourself. You, you muted yourself. <laughs> huh, sorry about that. I, no hands off. I, <laughs> um, it's always something. So um, the, I think the, the easiest way to wrap your head around this is for that beginner. Um, and, and really there are lots of curriculum uh, curricula out there that will literally take a whole um, semester or a whole three months of learning all of the letter sounds in isolation mm -hmm. and um, believing that that has to be mastered before reading can happen. Mm -hmm. And so, but we have an activity that's very popular and it's, you know, Maria Montessori did this uh, over a hundred years ago. She had kids, what, you know, learn a few sounds and then what, is, what do you hear at the beginning of a word like mat? So you can teach with asking a child, what do you hear at the beginning of the word mat? You're right there asking them, giving them a little hint about how the alphabetic principle works, that it's somehow connected to sounds. And, and they can then, with coaching, figure out how to separate that mm off the beginning of the, the word mat. And so they're doing some phonemic awareness. And then after you pull them, you know, get them to figure out that sound, well, what do you hear in the... Um, at the beginning of mat, okay, eventually they come up with m, then you're gonna ask them, okay, let's look at these letter sounds. So then they can learn the letter sounds next in the context of an activity. It's, it's a multiple choice. Um, a lot of kids, even if they don't know it solidly, will maybe get pretty close at get, you know, figuring it out. And if not, you tell them, well, this is m. So they build the word like this in the context of a, so they're always in the context of a word, they're doing the alphabetic principle, phonemic segmentation, letter sound knowledge, and this is how they can start to get the concept of how our language works and learn from this. 
And um, then you can do a variation on it pretty quickly. We call it switch it, but it's like word chains um, where you manipulate the letter sounds. And in that context, then they can learn the letter sounds as well. So they don't have to learn the letter sounds separately in isolation. Actually doing the contrast, well, you have mat, how could you change it to sat? That contrast is really, you know, getting their brain to zoom in on the critical features of those letter sounds and yeah. um, both sound and print. And they learn in the context of the activity. And so that's, I think of it as like, I like, I really like Cher's um, self-teaching theory um, um, that he said, you know, we're not teaching kids the thousands of words that they end up knowing by the time they're in high school. Um, maybe 20,000 words or something like that. It's a hockey stick of words that they have to learn. What we need is sufficient phonemic awareness, sufficient phonics knowledge, and a strategy, a decoding strategy. So I think of that, I, you know, I shouldn't say this in Wisconsin on a warm day like today, but I'm going to use a snow, snow metaphor. <laughs> like a you're on top of a mountain, and how much, what's the least amount of snow you can gather up, pack into a ball? That is the sound-based decoding strategy or approach. And then you start rolling that downhill by real reading, real spelling, and um, sometimes in isolation, sometimes in print. And that's another thing we do that's pretty radical. Even that beginner who maybe just learned three letter sounds today or this week, we're gonna also have her read and read. She's, we call it buddy reading, where the teacher does most of the reading, but maybe the child does reads one word maybe even reads one sound, but the, the goal is, hey, we're looking at print. We're trying to make meaning from this. And um, those little squiggles, they relate to the things you already know. You, If I read this book to you, um, you would know what it means. So your comprehension's there. Let's just figure out how to tie in the, the, the strange code that we've got and um, make it real to you as quickly as possible. And that's a faster way to put all the features together, the phonemic awareness, the decoding skills, the letter sound knowledge. Um, so, and also, particularly our kids who have limited literacy experiences, I feel that they learn much faster in this environment because yeah. the isolation can be yeah. like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're really talking about. <laughs> so let, let me let me just pause on this because you, you mentioned a lot of really crucial things, I think. Um, so um, one thing is the idea that um, somehow in some curricula or some people's belief systems, um, there's this idea that you uh, teach sounds in, in isolation and then uh, you build from the simple ones to the more complex ones. And after a while, you eventually start, you know, getting two words maybe, but um, uh, I, I don't understand where, whereas what, what you're talking about is what, so um, one way to think about that is it's training that is blocked you, you first do one kind of structure and then when the kids learn that enough, then you move to another kind of structure and then another kind of structure. And in, in the kind of work I do, what you're talking about is not block, it's interleaving. You're interleaving different parts of words and, and by presenting things in the context of words, when you're telling the kid about the first letter in M or the last letter or the vowel or something, by the way, you're also presenting it in the context of a word. And so they're getting some practice with that word. They're getting some practice with the, the onset. They're getting some implicit uh, practice with uh, the rhyme. They might be learning the word. I'm sure you get, have kids who uh, might not know the words. And so there's a vocabulary element to it as well. Right. Basically, 
what you're doing is closer to reflects the structure of language and print. It reflects the reality that these parts are fit together. It, that print and sound are not a set of independent sort of skills or independent sort of units going from you know small to, to large or some people from large to small. The, 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 the initial sound of a word is one part of it. The fact that it's part of a syllable is another. The fact that it's part of the word mat is another. Um, there's so many different things a kid can learn from that experience. In addition to the thing you're nominally pointing at, which is this kid needs to learn that there are phonemes and we'll start with ones that are the beginnings of words because they're kind of easier to isolate. So I, I really, really think you're, you're, so that, you know, to me, this is um, a lot more consistent with theories of, of learning that people like in, in reading in real in, in reading science in, in reading research have studied and um, you know we could show that we should probably do this uh, you know you can compare what would happen if I did it your way versus um, well let's start with the let's learn all the pronunciations of the vowels then let's learn all the pronunciations of the vowel digraphs then let's learn a bunch of consonants of one sort then we'll learn a bunch um, I, I think this is a really, really inef inefficient way to teach. And, and I, this is where I you know, really rock what you're doing, as they used to say a long time ago, because um, you picked up on what is really essential about you know, learning in a system where the parts are correlated with one another. And so you can learn more than one thing at a time. And that will make things more efficient for sure. Now, the hard question is how much do you do? And when do you, how do you know when to stop? And what, what you said was you're kind of opposed to this idea that you have to hit some, you know, target value. You have to know 90% of the phonemes of English, or you have to know X percentage of the spelling sound rules. I, I find all those things really kind of, um, I'm very, very skeptical about those things because People don't agree on what the spelling sound rules of English are, and so people are teaching different things. <laughs> and um, uh, and and I don't know what the forty. I don't think there are forty phonemes in English. It depends which version of English you speak. Yeah. But let's leave that aside. Yeah. Or uh, when when people sort of insist that kids reach a certain level of skill at, at, in these component kinds of knowledge, uh, I I, I want to ask, look. How is the kids reading doing, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the point isn't to be able to rattle off what the. Right, I think that's like, Marnie's got the kids reading from the get-go. Like the beginning kids are reading a little passage. And so you're already, clearly the goal is getting to the reading and you're thinking about how are they doing It's in the that? service of reading. Mm -hmm. And there's no fixed amount that you have to learn. It depends on where the kid is, yes. how much progress they're making. How, so are you, you're, you're obviously following, tracking kids' progress and providing feedback about where they need more of this or more, less of this. Right. Uh, can, can, can you talk a bit about, how, about that? Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, simplified is good unless you get to be too simplified and you leave things out. And that's, but, what people you know, who, that's what people who haven't gone through our course and haven't tested it often think. They assume because... <laughs> Uh, the alternative, the mainstream alternative in the in the decoding phonics 
camp is to do so much explicitness in isolation to such a thorough extent that that we look we look suspicious. <laughs> like, I, are these I, kids I, slowly really learning to read? <laughs> well, let me just before I let you answer more fully. I, oh no, you're doing the more efficient thing. There is it is puzzling how this other idea came along. It, it, it must appeal to a certain intuition that. Well, it's just like a bunch of building a building and first you have to get this foundation and then you have to get the next level and then you have to get the next level. Learning yeah. is not like that, especially in language. Right, right, right. So, so, but nonetheless, you, there's, there's over teaching, but there's also under teaching. And then there's kind of, I assume a key component of your system is I know how I can give the teacher feedback about where the kid needs more and where they don't. And right. maybe... I, do I have that right? Or? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the harder parts of the whole system. You really have to understand what are these big goals and where you're headed to make those calls about um, who needs more and who needs less. And um, especially if you're in the classroom and, and the you know, best case scenario typically is your a classroom teacher can work with a, a group of three to four or five kids. And so she still has a lot of things to juggle. So it's not easy. Um, but I, we try to, to make it simpler by a couple of principles. Um, we um, do keep it, the texts and what the t we're exposing kids to controlled it to some extent, but not to um, a complete extent. So um, we use like Diane McGinnis's basic and advanced code. So the basic code would be short vowels, consonants, consonant digraphs. Advanced code would be long vowels and all those other vowel combinations that are tricky. So we start those kids off at the basic code, which would be, uh, this would be that example to, to do the word mat. And so we want them to get into that second um, part of the, the my, my goals. We want them to not just get the alphabetic principle, but also start the skill of decoding. And we want them to be somewhat successful, but we don't want them to freak out because if we actually give them all of the world of reading, they will be hard to make these pattern. Um, conclusions. It's a lot harder if, if I give you Harry Potter when you're five to figure out the short A is A. <laughs> but if I, so there is that control initially with basic code. So the teacher is maybe thinking, um, the reason why we teach, once the kids know about um, three to four short vowels, and they can demonstrate it about 70% of the time, in activities like this or in text, then we're gonna push ahead to advanced phonics and learn say the O sound and its various spellings. O, we'll spend a week, O can be O, O by itself, OA, OW, et cetera. So um, that's like a principle that kind of undergirds. We're always trying to push forward and give them more exposure to the code because there's so much to learn. Uh, and also it goes along with making sure that we don't mislead kids about how the code works. If we spend all of kindergarten in short vowels, what do they learn about our written language? Uh, the, the vowel, vowel, well, yeah, not enough. And vowels are very reliable. They're predictable. And one letter is one vowel. So how many of you in this Zoom, like raise your hand, how many of you have had fits trying to get a kid to accept the idea that a vowel could be two letters? 
well, that's a natural, it's not, it's not, we set them up for that mis misunderstanding in our instruction. It's not that it's actually so hard to, to associate O with OA and AH with one letter. That's not hard conceptually, it's just the setup of the instruction. So we are aiming to get them to rapidly to learn that advanced phonics because that's so important for for being able to really understand our code and also read the high frequency words because the words that are gonna get them really rolling that snowball down the hill are mostly um, include a lot of advanced phonics information. So then we have another kind of underlying principle. So are they learning that O sound and the various spellings in the activities that they do and in reading, are they learning it about 70% of the time? Push ahead, um, keep reviewing. And so right, that's an important we'll point. Push ahead, keep reviewing. Again, right. there's a whole learning literature which suggests you can teach kids to 100% on something and then push ahead. And if you don't refresh what they just learned, it gets right. overwritten by the new stuff. Right. So, right. Short vowels don't disappear if you're reading text, you know. Um, and also, we actually do an activity for a long time that I was mentioning earlier switch it where you're changing multiple sounds on the board. And we always keep that at the short vowel level. For a couple of different reasons, but they're always going to get that. It's not like we're abandoning it. And if they're reading, the more and more natural text that we get to, the faster we get to it, they'll, it's they're not going to disappear. But it's the e sound. I I just just figured this out like a, a couple of years ago. The e sound, e is in many or e is in eat. It's in forty four or forty seven of the top three hundred fry words. So if you want your kids to roll down that hill, there's a big snowball with really figuring out, oh, this is how the code works. I'm really accelerating and I'm starting to make these uh, observations about how the language works. Give them something like that as opposed to the, even the letter Z or J. It's hardly in those top 300 and the top 300 make up about 65% of written English. So if they want, we want to get them really doing that reading, this, this is the faster route to what they're going to- uh, Let's talk about efficacy. those words. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, so I, I haven't done your program. I've only seen what things that are on the website, so I don't have complete knowledge here. But um, uh, I guess I'm. So you have a certain number of words that you treat as sight words, and then there are what's there are things that are left over that 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 follow patterns that, that are teachable. I guess the question. Well, I, is, I meant I meant. Um... We teach every, almost everything has some sort of sound-based decoding connection to it. So we teach everything with the sound-based decoding. Even the word said, we would just point to that AI and say, well, this, this is kind of funny. It's not that common, but this is eh instead. So we still make yeah. that sound and symbol connection. Good. I'm just mm -hmm. saying that strategically speaking, um, if we don't expose kids to the, these high frequency words really early on, um, they're not going to feel like readers. They're not going to be independent. The, and the high What's frequency the words have weird patterns in them that they wouldn't. Well, some yeah, do and, and some the, the irregularness of them of so many of the top hundred, particularly, yeah. Well, but but there's a couple of things. I, you know, I love that you're so excited about the program, and really, I am too. I think it's great, and and you're you're really touching on some of my my favorite points about um, how the system works and and what music is taught and so on. But um, what is I mean, everybody can teach CDCs. I mean, I, the, the issue is um, how, how do you, so fine, if you think of phonics as being the 
correspondences between uh, spelling and pronunciation and understanding that you do it in the context of words and getting kids in meaningful texts as soon as you can. How many patterns are there for you? And, and how, how many words are left over that really okay. kind of need special yeah. attention? Because yeah. um, it's a trick question because people don't agree on this. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, I sound heretical to some people when I say I don't really care how many there are because I only want to get that snowball going down, far enough down the hill that the child becomes independent because I don't think anybody here in the Zoom room actually was explicitly taught every single spelling in every single word that they've learned to read. That is um, so we do actually constrain the scope and sequence to be the ones that are going to give us you the most bang for your buck. Bang for your buck because they're high in frequency or because they occur across a lot of words or what? I don't know what the difference is between those two. Well, there's some high frequency words like uh, T-H-E-I-R, which are pretty odd. And oh, then there's right, other right. high frequency words that have patterns that occur in a lot of other words. I, like Yeah, with. I meant high, high frequency sounds and the, uh -huh. and, the, and the high frequency spellings to go I, with that. So the parts of words that are high in frequency and occur across words. Okay. Yeah. And then second, twofold, this was one thing that I, 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 fi I figured out in grad school with reading mostly Freddie Hebert's work about frequency is a lot of decoding programs, because they're so concerned about the sound-based decoding, which we are as well, they will choose words that are designed to challenge sound-based decoding, again, which is good, but you um, we want to do, we want them to learn those high frequency words really rapidly so they feel like a reader really early on. And so instead of choosing log, I might choose not because not is a high frequency word. Instead of choosing owl, I'm probably going to choose down. So well, does that make sense? So some of the time oh, sure. we're just going to use an, a, a low frequency word to, to develop decoding for sure. But insofar as we can stuff as many high frequency words in there that align with the sound that we're teaching, then we're going to get the ball rolling down the hill faster. So let, let me just follow up on this. Um, I mean, I'm with you. So um, one thing is, uh, People don't. People should know that you know the the frequencies of the, the frequency distributions of words are really important. So you know there's a small number of words that account for a huge number of the words you ever read in texts, and that's true in adult texts too. You know the top 200 most frequent words in English account for like half of the half of the tokens, half of the words that you'll account, encounter on Wikipedia or something like that. There's a really small number of words that are used a great deal, they're inescapable, and they are words that you want kids to get to really quickly. Now, but at the beginning, every word is a low frequency word for a kid. They, they, they haven't seen it. They might, they, they, it might be a high frequency word from their speech. They might have encountered it a lot through spoken language. So I guess my question is, you know, if you can get through the Fry lists or the Dilch lists or various lists, I mean, these lists are all at, at kind of ad hoc and differ in various ways. And we could be more systematic about it. But if you get through the couple hundred first most frequent words, which is going to include ones that have very consistent sort of predictable patterns and ones that are highly irregular and other, right. you know, everything in between, um, that that gives the kid a huge amount of power. And I guess my, my, my question is, What's the alternative? I mean, of course, you're going to teach the kids the common words first. You're not going to teach them, you know, 
defenestrate or, you know, or, you know, chat. Well, actually, I mean, actually, if you look at most uh, phonics programs, they, they're the word lists and the decodable texts put de-emphasize high frequency words to some extent, because they are, again, I, they have a principle. There's always a principle undergirding it. So I don't mean to diss that. And we are trying to definitely get sound-based decoding happening. Well, that's uh -huh. really important, but we want to do it in combination with high frequency words insofar as we can. So yeah. that is the, the, that's the curricular, in terms of the, today's topic of instructional efficiency, I think that's one way that the field could move it forward is that the, the texts and the words be more strategically chosen so that the kids could be, you know, like Stanovich's very famous Matthew effects paper. It was the kids that were at end of first grade who had that their system working for them that they were going to go on to be good readers. What did they have? They had sound based decoding and they had started to acquire enough um, high frequency words that they could read something like frog and toad, frog and toad, little bear, these early transitional texts. Those are huge milestones for us. If we can get to there, um, and we keep, of course, listening to the kids read and we coach them, then the, they're the, off to the races. I'm with you. The other thing, so a couple of things though, just to expand a little. Uh, one is um, when we looked, I looked at quite a few curricula and um, one of the surprising things is how poorly aligned the texts, I, I don't know what they're called anymore, the, the texts that have been written to go along with the curriculum, which, are not authentic texts in the sense of trade books, but they're ones that were written by the right. publisher. What do we call those? What's the term for that right now? They're not basal readers, but there's they're, they're like- It's usually the decodable text is the- they're, they're decodable texts. Yeah. Uh, the extent to which they're actually aligned with lessons, the scope and sequence, what's been going on that week or month is not very good. And so one thing is to actually, you're not doing as much reinforcing of what was going on in instruction right. um, uh, as, as you could, but because the materials are not as well chosen as you might think, uh, well aligned as you might think. But the other thing you're saying is, well, if the kids got the simple words, then the reading on their own, that's the time to throw the hard stuff at them because then they'll be able to show that they can generalize but you know, uh, we're saying that's not actually the best thing. You want the kid to continue succeeding and to continue building on what was the focus of instruction uh, during that period. I and and so, wait a minute. We've just got the kids so they're achieved liftoff. We we don't want to now make reading hard because right. we're giving them um, sure. uh, words that are at the edge of their vocabulary or something like that. What what do you do about vocabulary? So kids come into town to school with um, quite different knowledge of spoken language, vocabulary, size, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you actually incorporate teaching the kids what the words mean? Mm -hmm. Well, all of our word work, we would um, e either elaborate or define the word in the context of the word work activities. And then we also suggest that e English language learner um, kids get a picture dictionary uh, as much as possible so that they actually see the image if they're if they're really new to the language and then um, we would nurture their comprehension and their vocabulary in the context of reading the text but beyond that we are not really a language enrichment program so it's just how to access the, the code and so scaffold it with vocabulary development but 
um, we're really trying to get them reading words really rapidly up, you know, and up to their whatever their current English speaking ability is. And sometimes they might surpass that. And then you need to just work on the, the oral language, obviously, through read alouds and discussions and all the things that you would do um, for that. So it, we support that for sure in strategic ways, but we're still kind of fixated on the. I would say, I mean, so I've done the course. And so I've watched all the videos of Marnie, you know, giving the instruction and doing these, as you call it, the word work activities. And there is all like a check-in of like, okay, you've just decoded this word. Do you know what that word means? Right. Like I'll use it in a sentence. I'll give you an example. It's not, it's not just going to be like spelling a word just to spell it for the, or sounding it out for the sake of sounding it out. So, yeah, I um, just want to say that the, the limits of it are though that you know if you really don't know any English, yeah, we're this is not all this is not going to solve all your problems. <laughs> no, but I mean, although writing, the sooner you learn to read, the faster your vocabulary will improve. That's why I think it's a great um, social justice level leveler if we could just rapidly get kids to read and then encourage them to read, uh, motivate them to read, inspire them to read, then they would develop the knowledge that we that you know, that, that leads to success in school and beyond. Do we think that point needs emphasis or does everybody, is every, does everybody know that? I mean, the interesting stuff is that, you know, kids' initial progress in learning to read depends on their spoken language and kids' spoken language, knowledge of spoken language varies. So in the beginning, it really is dependent on your knowledge of spoken language, learning about spelling, learning the alphabetic principle, learning lots of things, it's all really close tied to the kid's speech. And if the kid doesn't know I mean, certain things, they don't know the words, um, then, then that has to be worked on. However, as you say, the great thing about reading is once you get into it, then the range of words and expressions and topics and other things uh, expands enormously over what you get from speech. So there is this transition that should occur where in the beginning, everything is driven by speech. You know, there's the, the simple view sort of, yes, in the beginning, that's true. It's, it's your, your, your ability to learn how to about print is to really dependent on your knowledge of spoken language. But if you, once you get into print, then it actually shifts and, and indeed almost most, most of the additional learning about words, vocabulary, language, et cetera, and the world is coming through text, not just through talking. Um, um, we wanna talk about um, just teachers and, and what teachers do need to know and what they don't need to know and other things. And I, I guess we might wanna also take some questions. I, I wanted to just ask one other, push you on one point, which is, you know, Marnie, it sounds like what you're saying is, look, we got to get these kids off the ground. There's a limited amount of time. We got to be smart about it. And um, here's the path for getting them going. And it's going to be good because they're going to succeed and that's motivating, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to have been smart about how we teach things. We're not going to do things in isolation. We're going to do things in, always in the context of, of uh, words or, or ultimately texts. But I heard what I heard you kind of saying was, and if we do this really well, then the ball is going to start get you know the momentum. We're going to push the ball down off the off the top of the mountain, and it's going to pick up speed. And eventually, you know, God, this is a terrible metaphor. I got to let that go. What you're saying is, it's sort of like 
Sorry. Uh, Goff talked about cracking the code. Cracking the code was like this moment of insight that was supposed to happen in the old oh, okay. days people right no. people thought it would happen at the end of first grade if you gave them no. enough instruction of the appropriate sort then the idea about how the code would work would suddenly dawn on the kid and they'd be able to take it from there now okay. i think that's simplistic but i kind of want to get right. a sense of how you view it yeah thank you i'm sorry i probably did not explain my metaphor well no. enough so what happens to a snowball when it's going down the hill it's picking up more snow and what that what is that what's the picking up that it's doing it's learning that um oa is o and maybe starting to see words like um boat and goat and then maybe even noticing that oat is a little a unit and so it's picking up that this it's picking up through reading and ideally also through writing spelling it's making these observations um, just like we learn language through exposure with sufficient decoding instruction and strategy the best way to learn to read is to read so that's what i'm talking about that's going downhill i'm not saying that um, we still don't need instruction and we still don't need to be learning very specifics about orthography and, um, um, and you know, vocabulary, but you're all along the brain is sinking though, how that code, that word I already know, I already know the word um, grow and now I'm sinking in my mind, oh, it's good for, and that's the, that's the O for grow and all that's getting synced in the mind as the reading experience happens and yeah. does it best, so I think in context so if I could rephrase what you're saying, you know, um, the kid learning to read is some combination of instruction, um, practice, and, and feed with feedback, right? And Perfect. I mean, Cher's idea was that, you know, sometimes the kid can generate the feedback themselves, but this is part of a more general idea about where the different sources of information are that tell the kid, did I get this right or not? Right. But, but um, um, so, so, um, I think it's important to test. It's not just that kids learn to read by reading. That's a slogan that's used for other purposes. Kids learn to read. Kids learn things from reading that both extend their knowledge of language, their knowledge of the world, and their reading skills. It's a feedback loop. It's not that you learn to read just by reading. It's that once you're able to read and you get into that system, then it starts giving you opportunities to expand your knowledge of words, of, of the language, of the things that we use language to talk about. So it, on the one hand, it's learning through reading. Yes, most of what we learn is a, after we've learned to read is coming out of text, right? Much more so than out of speech, but it's not just send the kid off with a book and let him read. It, no, definitely. Make sure that it's, and, and then the question is how you balance these components. And I think the main thing is the kid has to have enough opportunities to learn, right? There have to be enough of those ones that are both exploration and, but also, you know, supervised mm -hmm. uh, where there's feedback of some sort so that they can tell whether they're getting things right or not and so on. Um, so it's kind of a balance among these things that ends up being the final frontier to me, you know? And I think that's um, why we've gotten some uh, approaches that might be on, kind of on one, on one extreme or the other. This is kind of grossly speaking, but the balanced literacy approach with the predictable text is, is 
assuming that the child needs to become independent and we know the child can't be independent early on. So we're gonna use pictures and patterns in the language to allow the child to be independent. And on the other end of the continuum, there are strictly decodable texts where everything is something that the child has previously been taught and nothing is left to chance. Yeah. And, and I think saying like somewhere in between is what's gonna teach the kids um, more honestly about how the code works and also give them the cognitive flexibility of playing around with sounds, trying to figure out stuff, decoding how to decode uh, on their own or with support for sure. The support is essential. And I think that's another thing that's caused things to kind of sometimes go haywire is it's hard to figure out how as a classroom teacher can can give feedback to 25 kids. Yeah. So we built that, we built a system for optimizing that. But I think as people think about going back to school and you know, that's the biggest thing that they could do to, to, to reduce learning losses is how can we get, how can we even arrange the whole school day so that children have the most opportunities to have eyes on print and get the necessary feedback so that they can learn from that. We teach at Read It Simplified that when you're giving feedback, like in the word grow, if the child reads it as growl, um, we're saying, yeah, you're gonna teach them, well, what else could that be? It could also be, oh, okay, oh, it's grow. They're not just learning about the OW, and grow, they're learning a principle and a strategy and attack me uh, mechanism that serves them to read every other word for the rest of their lives. You and I, all of us here are still using that. The first time we saw the word COVID, maybe it was, well, probably heard it on TV first, but if we hadn't, we might've said COVID and we might, you know, it <laughs> could have been either way. And um, we're still playing around with sounds to come up with something that matches our semantic vocabulary. And yeah. want to give kids that opportunity, but it is hard to pull that off for sure in the classroom. And I think that's why we, we, we've done all these things that kind of end up moving away from the theory of, of how integrated learning reading is. So, I, oh, I really want to get to the other topics. This is so interesting. I mean, you need to give the kid enough opportunities to learn, learning opportunities. Some of them come from direct instruction. Some come from working in little, small groups. Some might come one on, from one-on-one, -on -one, but, you know, that comes at a cost to the other kids who aren't getting that, that, that attention at that moment. So, um, where are these other opportunities going to come from? Well, one traditional answer has been, oh, they'll deal with it outside, uh, you know, out of school. They'll deal with it right. at home and um, buy extra software and, and, and support and so on. And um, uh, that will work, but it, it also isn't very fair because there's kids who aren't going to be able to access those resources. But the other thing is, why not just embed reading all day in everything the kid is learning, like all the other topics, because the kids, they all involve reading too. And so if the teachers in these other subjects have a sense of where the kids are, where they're reading and the kinds of uh, obstacles that come up and the kind of bumps in the road there are, they too can figure out ways in which to provide useful feedback so that um, while they're teaching science or they're teaching, um, you know, about uh, something else. Um, they're they're also giving the kids some other additional opportunities to learn about the print and and sound sort of system. Maybe, and, maybe we could take questions and also talk about teach which, what what we what you think teachers need to know and don't need to know and so on. But Molly, where should we go? I'm concerned. So many options. Yes. 
<laughs> so many interesting things to talk about. Well, I think definitely the, the, what the teacher's knowledge is something that like, if we had stayed on the topic of what does reading simplified mean? I think that's something that to me stuck out in taking the course myself was that immediately it just jumped into, okay, let's learn about phonemes. What are phonemes? Let's learn how to like, you know, do the, the letter sounds. And it wasn't a lot of teacher knowledge that needed to be developed before you could really jump into just doing the activities. So maybe you could say a little more about like what you thought about how you went into thinking about that. Right. Um, the experience of developing the targeted reading intervention at UNC made me realize that, you know, we did three days of in-person PD and then we watched them over the course of a year, sometimes two years, um, twice a month. And some things transferred and sometimes it didn't, you know, um, but because they were in the context of words and showing the kids how the code worked, even when they did it at 75%, they were making a big difference. So like my, the fidelity to my, my program wasn't 100%, but for any like one given like moment in time, but still I could see those kids are learning because the alternative, particularly in most of the communities we were in, although not all of them, most of them were coming from a balanced literacy perspective where they weren't really clear about how the code works. They weren't connecting phonemes and graphemes and they weren't reading decodable text. And so the things that were, there was just too hard for the kids to pick up how the code works. That's why they were in this category of struggling readers. So, um, so that was very um, pivotal in my thinking like, okay, I, was a tutor. I taught lots and lots of kids and I got my doctorate, but what does the classroom need, teacher need tomorrow to actually make sure that their kids are going to move forward? She doesn't need the same level of information. And the other thing that we've discovered is like, if once you start doing this activity, you learn more about phonemic awareness by doing it with kids. You're always a, a step ahead of them because they're five or six or maybe a struggling reader who's not very good at it. You're going to be ahead of them, but you can learn it in the context. And also our materials are coded um, for the beginning levels. So like a TH would be bolded or O-U-G-H in the word though would be bolded as a one thing. So that's for the supporting of the student, but it also is going to teach the teacher more about phonics information she might not have noticed before just implicitly. So we're kind of just like, let's jump into it. You're going to be ahead of the kids. And as you teach them and look at the materials and hopefully continue your journey with more professional learning, you will, um, you will figure out the things that you need to, to figure out. Now, of course, to become like great at working with a child with more of a dyslexia profile, sure, you would want to um, do more than just um, the eight to 10 hour course, we have additional resources for that type of more in-depth training, but your average teacher within an average classroom can make so much difference just, just after even just learning that one, learning this activity. Actually, we have an event, actually, this has also been very instructive. Um, I have a special event that I do sometimes twice a year it's called level up your kids, level up your reader's achievement in five days. And all we ask them to do is one activity, switch it. So it's like that the, where you change one sound at a time. It's really teaching how the decoding system works, developing phonemic awareness. And all I ask the teachers and parents all over the world to do is to try that one activity for about five minutes a day. And invariably we have some people that say, 
oh, my kid is reading now. And I'm not saying that that's all that kids need in general, but sometimes that unlocks the code for the kids oh, and, totally. and gets that snowball rolling down the hill. So um, there's so much power in um, actually implementing the activities and learning as you go. That's kind of been our modus operandi. Yeah. Hmm. Somebody's asking here or thinking about thinking that reading simplified maybe requires a lot of teaching skill to do the feedback part. Yes. Like how do you intervene when a student is struggling? How many times do you let them try before you yes. tell the word that because there aren't so any hard and fast rules that that's so maybe, again, something. The yeah, that's a really apt point because uh, I, I stress feedback quite a lot in the training and I tell teachers, hey, the nice thing about each of these activities, we teach SWIC, build it, and this one is build it and switch it. I've mentioned there's just a, another handful of activities that we teach, sort it, read it, and write it. Okay, so for each of those activities, the errors that kids make, there's just about three to five errors. So you can, here's our sheet. Um, these are the things they're going to do. They're going to go this way or that way. And here's how to bring them back in. And, and this kind of, this ties back to something I thought about earlier, you know, when I was saying, oh, this is all you have to do is she, she put it all together in the context of the words. I know people are out there saying, yeah, but they can't isolate the phoneme. They can't do it. It's too hard. And I, and so it, it is, a, it is about the coaching through those hard things, um, which inevitably means you have to be in a small group or you just take a little longer in a whole group. So like, yeah, if they can't figure out that the mm is the beginning of that, I could just do it for them or I could try to draw it, draw their attention to it with more exaggeration. Like, well, what do you listen really carefully to what co what's coming out of my mouth when I say mm, Matt. And so that gets them to accomplish that. And that's just one example of classic feedback thing that we do throughout um, multiple activities, drawing attention to the sounds in words and how they line up to particular symbols. That's, that's, the that's our bread and butter. And that will get the teacher so far and Excellent. kids so far, so much more rapidly than, um, a lot of things in back to the beginning in isolation. Yes. And, and, and um, so am I right to say, um, you're emphasizing connections between spoken language and print in, this, All the time. in these activities. Every time. Tell us, why do you do that, Doctor? Well, I mean, it's, how do you it's the right thing. That, but, but, and how do you but, convince yes. people that aren't doing that? That was yeah, another question. Those are two questions. Yeah. Like, well, the first thing, and actually that was really how I kind of led off with Reading Simplified. Well, a lot of times I was taking, talking to people that were coming from a balanced literacy mindset, and I was trying to um, make the case that, you know, the written language is a code for sounds. That's what the alphabetic principle is. And that's not common knowledge to the average person on the street necessarily. And, and a lot of our teachers have been even kind of uh, taught to think against that. So yeah, yeah, so it is pointing out that the written language is just a, a physical, it's a representation of the sounds and words we are. And this is why the speech to print approach is so important. The child already comes knowing lots and lots of words and we just help them say that word that you just said, you know, dad, did you hear all those sounds? And can you, and can now you map them onto these particular symbols? So it is very much so that of course, we're always drawing from what do you hear? And that's part of our feedback. So if they, if they did, um, uh, Matt, like this, we would give them the feedback back to the point about what they create. Oh, so you created Matt, Matt, 
but we want the word mat. So we're always, again, what is the student hearing? What makes sense for them and their language? And that's how they learn the code really rapidly. Yes. And so, oh, and so for the teacher, that's kind of my angle is, yeah, yeah, that, I mean, I just really emphasize that this is the theory. Sometimes I'll use the triangle um, pro processor about orthography, phonology, and semantics yeah. and, and show how those connections are made um, and talk about the importance of phonemic awareness, but phonemic awareness is only a means to an end of figuring out how the code works. And then once you decode a word, you see it a couple of times and then it becomes a sight word, so to speak. And so that's kind of our persuasion for teachers. Can we say that again though? Like it's a means to an end and the end <laughs> is the child's reading. Yeah. Literacy, I mean, reading, writing, spelling. Um, do we have other people wanting to ask things? And, um, or, um, I mean, most of the people are just very excited about reading Simplified in the chat. If you've been reading the chat, you you, you should be convinced to try it out at least. Marty, it, it does sound labor intensive. It sounds yes, like- for the teacher, and, and especially the beginner teacher. For the, for the beginner, whether the beginning for a five-year-old or if you have a 15-year-old who is just starting their journey, it is a lot of feedback. But the the- it can happen like within days that you start to give less and less feedback. So it can give you feedback that, okay, this is working. And so the intensity is worth it. Um, but yeah, orchestrating the classroom is a big deal. And we, that's why we have some modules about that because um, there is so much effort that has to go into it. And I, my attitude is it's that upfront investment is so worth it because you get the kids to, um, get independent much more quickly and so you you know you get to a point where you're just barely you know listening to their reading and you just every, every occasionally point out an error and then you can talk more about the meaning of text and move them into more interesting things to read and so it's it's an investment that's well worth the, the outcome and i would say also part of the you know the academy is that there is the teacher's lounge the forum boards there and so there's a lot of support for you as a as, you know, you're not, you don't have to do it alone necessarily. You know, like if you want to ask questions, you want to get the feedback um, and suggestions. Yeah, and that's really important because um, every teacher is doing this in a different situation. And we, right. we want to say, these are the, this is the structure. We have a three-part lesson component that we want you to do all the time. So you make sure you hit all the main things that are needed to become good at reading words. Here's only a handful of activities. These are some of the principles. Here's some word lists. And then, yeah, how do you fit it to your context? So that's the value of the online discussion board. We want people to say, well, this is my issue here and maybe it's how to orchestrate my classroom or I've got Johnny here and he just isn't blending. And so what do I do next? Is because a lot of professional development is like, let's go sit in our chairs, learn a lot, maybe get excited. And then you go back and what happens on Monday? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we, we, this is, it's an issue. Um, we insisted that we would leave time towards the end for questions, so I just want to make sure we're not talking over anything. I think we've mostly gotten some questions. I'm, somebody was asking how, if you know how Reading Simplifies differs from Orton-Gillingham. She was saying she doesn't have Orton-Gillingham experience. I don't know if you do. She doesn't have Orton-Gillingham experience? Yeah, so but I, I'm not. Well, there's a lot of overlap in that um, both programs are going to be teaching writing and spelling with sound connections and 
um, drawing attention to print. There's a system. Phonics is learned. They both do blending and segmenting. So there's a lot of overlap there. I think that um, some of the, the things that I was trying to suggest we could move past were the waiting, the, the waiting before you get into the midst of things um, and also setting the kids up more early on for coping with variation in the written code so that we don't hold them in a short vowel bubble for too long. And then they also, I think a lot of Orton Gillingham programs will teach phonics rules and syllable types, which we have found that aren't necessary. And I think are more in alignment with how we typically learn to read. So those are some of the big, big idea differences. Yeah, those are big differences. And, um... Oh, and somebody saying reading simplified, does it start with some some multi-letter graphemes as well? Maybe? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, again, part, part of like, how are we going to point out how the code works? Um, we actually throw in TH really early on because I want to get to the word the, and I also want to show the kid that, you know. Um, it doesn't have to be one-to-one. It doesn't have to be one to one correspondence sense, right? So we're going to do we're going to do th and a and t to make the word that from maybe the first week, because conceptually it's not too hard for them. And your the and that the and thick, those are different, but but they are different. But do you experience it when you're learning to read? Is that different? I don't notice that kids do. I that's a good, really good question. Um, uh, yes. Other other issues. Um, yeah, so the only other thing that maybe came up was people asking about if there's like people who have experience using it with kids with dyslexia or executive functioning difficulties or like you know English language learners, non you know not their typical right kid. Yeah. We have a lot of folks doing that with a lot, you know, because we kind of try to reach people from all over the world, and and I've tutored a lot of different. Um, types of learners myself. And my finding is that they can much more rapidly access the code and become decoders um, per, um, with this approach. Maybe if they have working memory or some challenges, it might take a little longer. But um, then there's that other layer of getting the word to become learned by sight. And some kids, particularly if they're more of a classic dyslexic profile, that's going to take longer for them. I think that's true of every program that's on the planet at, at this point, that it takes longer. But what, what I'm happy to see is those kids can, with a lot of support, can be reading more advanced stuff more rapidly because they do absorb the code more quickly this with this way and they know how it works, but then, yeah, it's gonna take a lot more repetition, reading and writing to have the words become um, as automatic as they need to be. Yeah, I mean, for, for some kids, hey, you know, kids who are struggling struggle for a variety of reasons, some of them um, will catch on very quickly because their problem is just that they didn't have proper instruction. Some kids are uh, have other conditions that are making it harder for them to connect, learn about print, learn about sound, and learn about the connections. Um, and, and those kids may just benefit from um, more, more of the same. And, and then there are some kids and it's really hard to tell who they are and, and it's really hard to tell early enough who they are, who, um, you know, that system is not gonna be developing in a, in a way that's adequate to support skilled reading. And um, there are workarounds that one can move towards and the big um, choice, diagnostic problem and the big 
big choice that has to be made is which kid is which? Who's going to actually catch up? Because, uh, in fact, lots of kids do. Um, right. Uh, with appropriate instruction and a lot of practice and feedback and support and so on. And who are those kids for whom you know um, they're they're developing in a way that's going to require other sorts of workarounds? Very hard to tell. Yeah, I like to tell teachers, you know, we have like a one page scope and sequence, which is how to think about development for to, to get to fluency all one page. It's like our phonics and our and our high frequency words and um, some phonemic blending skills and some decoding strategies all wrapped up into one page. So we go through these like 12 steps. It can be as little as 12 weeks, maybe even faster if the kid's gifted. But, um, you know, you do that for 12 weeks, maybe maybe 24 weeks, and you've done all of this really great sound-based decoding instruction, and you've exposed them a lot of text, you've encouraged them to reread some text so that they can build their site vocabulary, and after that time, if you're still just seeing really small growth, and that's a sign to us that more intense intervention would be helpful. I mean, you might have been able to do that earlier, but certainly like I can see from afar, if you've really done a good job after 12 to 24 weeks of this and you're still um, seeing much lower growth than all the rest of your class, then that's a, that's a marker. It's kind of an RTI perspective. Yeah, um, yeah, and sure. at that point, we, we tend to say, let's do more work in isolation with words mm -hmm. because that statistical pattern um, skill that the brain's supposed to be good at, maybe this is not working so well for them. So let's get more blunt and um, stuff in isolation, particularly for the kids with that are so good with language, they can be filling in the blanks with connected text. Yeah. And they might not be really noticing the inside parts of words. So let's, let's keep doing the stuff that's very contextual and then also have a component where there's a little bit more work yeah. in, uh, of words in isolation, studying the word parts. That's kind of our, to me. our approach right now. So, so, Marnie, if I could just offer an opinion, I think I think what you what you done is carved off is was very was I think you were very smart about how you focus the program and and everything you do. We we all know that just learning to read words isn't the only thing that goes into reading, but it's a big deal. And if you don't get it, then uh, things cascade down. You know. The, the ball, the snowball does not go down the hill gathering uh, good things. So, um, so, but so, so some people take from that, oh, well, we need to spend a lot of time on, you know, the mechanics of reading and the little details about, you know, rules of spelling and rules of pronunciation. And then it's going to be sight word memorization, all these other things that are kind of will build the system up, et cetera. It's very long, takes a long time, it's boring. And I think what you, what, if I could offer an interpretation, what, what you did was, you said on the one hand, well, word reading, fluent reading, and knowing what the words are, this is a big deal. And if you can do that, then a lot of other things will follow because the kid will be reading. However, you also avoided the other problem, which is focusing so narrowly on the mechanics that the kid is not getting into reading. And in fact, you're, you're sort of, uh, they're getting, um, it's kind of getting lost in the in the in the in the weeds. So um, I feel like you've just really titrated things pretty nicely by saying, "Yep, you need to be able to read words, absolutely, as many as possible, and you know that'll help you build other things." 
Um, but you didn't decontextualize it. You actually are not just teaching things in isolation. You got words there, you connecting the things that they're learning in the scope and sequence for that day or week to the materials that they're reading, et cetera. So to me, you're not subject to the objection that you're just teaching the kid the mechanics because you're doing it in the context of language, words. And, um, but you're also making sure the kid gets through the big initial hoop, which is get them so they can read enough words to be able to read more and more on their own and learn, figure more and more out on their own and so on. So I, I really feel like you kind of know you're not teaching everything that goes into being a skilled reader. You're teaching things that go into getting into the system and being able to take over more of the learning, um, well, benefit more from what goes on in, in the classroom and build build your, your skills further. So mm -hmm. I feel like it's a really nice way to have to add things up. Thank you. And you're giving teachers activities. I mean, it's not just the knowledge, it's what, what am I actually going to do? And it's a lot of scaffolding for that as well as right. you know, you know what you can step into the classroom and immediately do. And like you said, it's like six things that you learn how to do these six activities and then you've got what you're gonna do instructionally. So you're not wasting time in prep or that you don't have time for uh, to do that prep um, to figure out what it is, how you're gonna implement things. And I think that that really helps too. Mm -hmm. nice thing. Yeah, that was our intent. You know, they, um researchers break things up into their little parts right and that's so we, we read about phonemic awareness and and but we we need to also put it back into how how it all fits together with the whole um, obviously researchers understand a lot more but they have to study something into the at the lowest level to be able to really pick apart all the questions and study it from all the angles and so that's a threat that we have especially if we haven't been trained in the research which many of us haven't, and I hadn't when I first started teaching. And then the publishers, on the other hand, they seem to think, they kind of like Charles Dickens, like get paid by the word. <laughs> you know, like if you don't include every single thing that a child needs to have and your scope and sequence is like miles and miles long. Um, Not enough hours in the year. In the no, year. you could not, it would take three or 400 days to get, you know, I don't even know, it's hard to speculate. And so what that creates for the teacher uh, all these things like the, you know, like the National Reading Panel, I'm glad that your your marks, you know, you've pointed out that it's, it well, it's not a model of reading development. Those are five really important pieces of great research that's gone behind it, but it doesn't tell us how things fit no. together and what to do in what order. Yeah. Um, and so that's an issue that teachers who have just kind of come to so, realize that they could do their teaching of reading better. And then the other thing is like, there's so much dumped on them. Yeah. Um, oh, and sure. it's it's so so hard. You feel guilty. Like if I just do that, then I'm not doing. I'm not teaching like parts of speech. Yeah. And if I just do that, then I'm not teaching. You know, all the things. Right. Um, I mean, but people. Have, but people, listen. Time is, you know, limited. And if you're spending more time on X, you're spending less time on something else. And if you're spending yes. too much, you're not being clever about it and spending too much time on X thing, you're never getting to Y and so on. The, the, the thing that the research says that I don't think has penetrated very far yet is these things are interactive, that what you learn about one type of information actually tells you something about the other type of information. So now you're, you know enough about this, and a lot about this, and you are building this into your, a lot of your activities and so on, this idea, you have it. but. Um, uh, 
but this hasn't penetrated very far. And so you end up with things like, here's everything you need to know, a skilled reader knows, teach it <laughs> and figure out how to divide up the time so that they'll be, you know, the kid will meet the milestones they're supposed to meet. This is not, this is not reasonable. So um, uh, yeah, if we, we need to kind of, this, this isn't something that comes across from the five pillars of, uh, of reading instruction or, or, you know. And I think it's a lot about what's the model of development that's in the teacher's mind. Indeed, and that, that's such an important thing. I, I mean, Mark I, only, I only say, say like five, four things, but one of them is thinking about things developmentally and um, it doesn't, it's not. First you learn this block of things, then you build the next one, and then you build the next one. Language doesn't work that way. Writing doesn't work that way. Teaching kids shouldn't work that way. But um, this is the really cool part of the science, which is like how people are wired to actually make these connections between things that are correlated. You know, the fact that a phoneme is part of a syllable, which is part of a word, which might be part of them, have a certain morphemic structure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People are really good at picking that stuff up. If you set up conditions where they can, that's that's kind of those those connections are emphasized. People are really good at picking them up. You, you lose that if you divide things into components. And if I could just listen, the, the National Reading Panel report, we gotta get past that because it's being used for in ways that are not appropriate. The National Reading Panel report said these things, there's evidence that these things are teachable. And therefore people said, let's teach them. But the response, I think we're way past that now. Things like phonemic awareness or knowledge of spelling sound correspondences and other things. There we know a lot more about how these things are developing and it doesn't require that way of dividing things up. It's more along the lines of what, what you're doing, I think. So we could move ahead and, and it would be really helpful. Yeah, it was a real aha to me when I was reading the work, I think Wagner and Torgerson and others that were, maybe several others have said that um, phonemic awareness is bi-directional. So we need enough of it to be able to do that very first thing and unglue that first sound. But then after that, a lot of it can happen through print and the yeah. print teaches phonemic. And I liked in your book, you said something about the phonemic illusion. And I yeah. thought that was really important because that's why we need to always get it as close to real reading as possible because actually um, what we think of as phonemic awareness is just in our minds is orthography. <laughs> We're like, we've linked everything, sounds and spellings with print. Yeah. Print is the hook that we're using. And so, um, it's not as much that we're analyzing sounds anymore as mature adult readers. Um, no, not unless you're learning a new, new language. But anyway, I, I really think you, 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 from coming from your direction and your background and your, your particular journey, you're, you're incorporating a number of these really important principles. And there, there is a lot more research that will back you up on them and, and indeed might provide some additional help in deciding you know, how to group things and what to do when and so on. But, same builds on the same same theoretical foundations, I would say. Yeah, there's more done? research. How there's more. Go ahead. 
No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's, I mean, it is exciting to see a little, uh, that there's more research on like instructional decisions. Like Gonzalez Frey and, and Ari came out with just a simple thing about how to teach blending, mm -hmm. whether you teach it segmented, and then read the word, or you teach it connected, cat. That's a, those are very subtle, small things, but they just, they realized that in that study that blending them as they went is and putting cat together is easier than doing it separated. Another study just came out of Adesty and Sanders. I'm not sure how to say her name, but um, do you, in five weeks, can kids learn 15 letter sounds or can they learn 10? Which one did better? Oh, well, it was the 15. And also the kids could handle learning consonant digraphs like the TH we talked about earlier. They could handle that and they did better when they learned those. So those are like, that's just really some subtle instructional points that that are coming out. Maybe they've, they've been there for a while, but we've always been saying, you know, the National Reading Panel and others, okay, we, we know it's got to be explicit and, explicit and systematic phonics. That's really true. And yet that's like, that doesn't clarify much of anything yeah, <laughs> in terms of what you do instructionally. Right. Yeah, so we, there's a lot more that we could keep um, learning from research when they, when researchers ask these kind of, my, they're minutia, but they all play into how you package your, your program. Yeah, I think so. Well, how, how have we done on this lovely day? I think pretty great. So if people, Marnie, if people have kind of follow-up nitty-gritty questions that they want to ask about Reading Simplified, is there an easy way for them to get those answered? Well, um, they can email me, Marnie at readingsimplified.com. I'll put that in the chat. Um, also, we have a lot of resources for free at readingsimplified.com. So yeah. our core activities, you can see them in depth um, if you go to readingsimplified.com and then look at most popular blog posts. Those, those are our most popular activities. And so you could learn like when I was talking about switch it, how do you integrate phonemic awareness and phonics and all that into that? That explains it, but I'll put my Great. email in there too. Yeah, and we'll link to it on the website as well. So Marnie, thanks a lot Ed, for being here, but more, more to the point, thanks for the work that you've done. And um, really it's such a pleasure to talk to someone who's got the background and the, the sense of, you know, this is, what learning is about there's there's people are really great learners kids are really great learners you just have to structure their experience to get them where you want them to go you don't have to teach the kid to be like a linguist or a, or a scientist to figure out words or you need to like build on their capacities to pick up on these ways in which things go with one another and if you if you set up the experiences correctly then kids can get to where they need to go. And, and I really think you're building a lot of that into your materials, though I haven't actually used them in a classroom. Maybe anyway. you're gonna get some free time, <laughs> test it all out. <laughs> hey, no, I, actually that's my, my, my little uh, pet peeve is how many reading researchers um, would benefit from teaching a kid to read? Well, they would, but many, many, do, many people come into the field having their right, teachers. Right, right, And also I'm a teacher too. True. Uh, even though I don't teach people to read, I deal with people who have reading and writing issues. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. you're right. Uh, certainly observing a lot more about what goes on in classrooms. My experience going to uh, a really poor, inner, uh, uh, really desperately poor uh, uh, school in, in urban, in, in Atlanta, or, or going to a, a, a classroom in Mississippi, uh, going to classrooms in middle-class 
you know, some part of the world, Madison for goodness sake, um, it is essential that people actually get a sense of what is happening, uh, researchers, I mean, uh, what's happening in classrooms. And um, I don't think that means they have to situate themselves in classrooms because classrooms are terrible places to do research. But, <laughs> yeah. And nobody wants us in the classroom doing research. <laughs> oh, yeah, but uh, but yeah. nonetheless, I, I, there are vid videos of expert teachers or people teaching this or that. There's so much out there that people, researchers can indeed get a sense of um, what's going on. And of course, we all have this opportunity to talk to, talk to each other. Well, that's why I'm so excited about what you're doing. I mean, writing the book, very revelatory, shaking things up, and now you're doing this work. Um, that, those are things I know about where you're trying to help people understand the big picture because, um, and just the bridge, that's, that's, that's everything. All right, well, let's shake on that. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, thanks a lot. We're gonna let you go and- um, It's been a privilege, thank you both. Again, thanks a lot. Thanks everybody for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so everybody. We'll Hope be off next week for Mother's Day, but in two weeks we'll be back with Dr. Rebecca Treeman talking about spelling. Yay. Oh, that'll be great. And she'll also tell us about climbing very tall mountains. Yeah. Yeah. We're stealing her from her outdoor time of rock climbing and biking. And yeah. Impressive. Oh, she's great. great. And we'll see you again soon, I hope. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening to this reading meeting recording. You can find more information about past and future reading meetings on our website. We hope you'll join us for future meetings. Thank you.